0: Today we're going to dig into the book of 1 Corinthians. As I've looked ahead to preaching 1 Corinthians, we could spend easily a year in 1 Corinthians, don't worry. I don't know that we'll make it that far into it, or that deep into it, but we are going to spend some, some significant time in the book of 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians is an amazing book of practical theology for the church. You see... What we would call 1 Corinthians is what's called an occasional letter. By an occasional letter, what that means is that Paul wrote this book on a specific occasion of events that were taking place. In the case of Corinth, it was not good events. He had gotten some bad news that the church was misbehaving, that there were significant behavioral problems going on in the church at Corinth. And so he wrote a letter to address these issues. But before we dig into the letter, I want to take us to the book of Acts. And actually, before I even go there, I want to take us to our memory verse. So let's go to our memory verse, and then we'll go to the book of Acts. So let's read together 2 Timothy 4.8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 2 Timothy four eight. As we dig in to the Corinthian church, I want you to remember that, yes, there are going to be some negative things we learn about this church in Corinth. There are going to be some problems that need resolved. But that doesn't change the fact that laid up for us and for all those who long for, who love the appearing of Christ is the crown of righteousness. So yes, there will be some doctrine that we have to deal with. There will be some sin issues in the church of Corinth that we have to deal with. But never forget that for those who've accepted Christ as their savior, there is the promise of eternity. And so this is cleaning up the life of somebody. That's what the book of Corinthians is about. Salvation is assured for those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Let's look at Acts 18 just to set the stage. Acts 18 presents us with Paul's initial contact with, with this church in Corinth. So in order to set the stage, read with me Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to them, If you Jews are making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about the words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd. There turned on Sothenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Galileo showed no concern whatsoever. So the situation that we have in the city of Corinth is one in which Paul, after having spoken in Athens, kind of the capital of philosophy, the height of education, Paul goes on to the city of Corinth. And in the city of Corinth, Paul meets a few believers and begins to work with the church in Corinth. And he stays there not a few months, but rather a few years, working closely with this church. Paul probably wrote 1 Corinthians a few years later, in AD 55, after having moved on from Corinth to a new city. Three years later, Paul gets word that there are problems in this church that he has invested so much time in. The problem seems to be that the people in this church don't understand what it means to be spiritual people. They don't know what it means to be guided by the Holy Spirit. They've lost that idea, and they've fallen off the wagon. And so Paul writes the book of 1 Corinthians. So you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Today, we're going to use just the introduction to get us started. And you might think, what do you mean, a sermon on the introduction? Yeah, a sermon on the introduction. Because there's some really, really good stuff in this introduction. In Paul's introduction, we're going to see that the focus of our calling is Christ. Christ is the focus of our calling it is a miraculous calling marked by grace and defined by action so let's read together 1 corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 through 9 paul called to be an apostle of christ jesus by the will of god and our brother silas to the church of god in corinth to those sanctified in christ jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What I want you to see first of all is that the call of Christ applies to all of us. Christ's call applies to all of us. Really, you say? Yes. Christ's call applies to all of us. Look at how Paul describes the call of Christ. He first talks about it in his own life in verse 1. He refers to himself as an apostle by the will of God. Paul was called to Christ, and he recalls that he was personally called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This occurred in Acts chapter 19, and in Acts chapter 19, verses 15 through 16, Christ says explicitly, I have chosen Paul as an instrument for my work. Paul was called an apostle. The word apostle means sent one. One who has been sent. It's an explicit reference to somebody who had direct teaching from Jesus, who had witnessed the risen Lord and was sent to bear testimony to that witness. Someone who had witnessed the risen Lord. That means there aren't apostles today because we won't see the risen Lord until we're in heaven in glory with him but the apostle paul had seen the risen lord he was personally called an apostle of jesus there's something interesting here though as i was looking at this text it says paul called to be an apostle of christ jesus now as i thought about the word called i thought of it as a verb here it's a noun because it's descriptive of who he is. It's fundamental to him, is that he's called to Christ. Now, I'm going to argue with all of you that you're all called to Christ too. We'll get there. But I want you to understand that your call to Christ is fundamental to who you are. Paul's call was by the will of God. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Paul's call was not his own choice. It was not his own call. It was not the church's call. It was God's call. When we talk about our call, it's God's call. It's his authority. It's his position. Did you notice who Paul includes there in verse 1? and our brother Sosthenes. Do you remember reading about Sosthenes earlier today, already, in Acts 18? It seems Paul had an impact on even the Jewish leaders of the synagogue. I'm guessing it's the same person as Acts 18, verse 17. But Paul includes our brother Sosthenes. Why? Because the call of God is not a call to go alone. The call of God is not a call to go alone. It's a call to go with others, to bring along a yoke fellow. And I think that's exactly what Paul is doing here, is he is including a yoke fellow. Okay, so that's Paul's call. Look, though, at verse 2. The Corinthians, to the church. The church where? The church in Corinth. The Corinthians were the church of God and called themselves to be a holy people. I want you to understand what it's saying here. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, Jesus, and called to be his holy people. Paul had a call to be an apostle. The church had a call to be holy. The identity of that church was God's church. It wasn't Paul's church. It wasn't Sosthenes' church. The identity of the church was God's church, and they were called out by God. They were sanctified by Jesus. same salvation. They were saved from sin. The moment they accepted that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, they were set apart for God. Set apart not to suffer the wages of sin, which is death, but rather the gift of God, which is eternal life. And it happened by Jesus Christ. So we've got Paul. We've got the church. Look at the second half of verse 2, though. There's your universal quantifier. Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. All who call on Jesus Christ are called to holiness. Are called to holiness. What does this mean? In in our church culture, we often talk about people who are called to be a pastor. And yes, there are people who are called to be pastors. We talk about people who are called to be deacons. And yes, there are people who are called to be deacons. We talked about people who are called to be missionaries, and yes, there are people who are called to be missionaries. And guess what? If you don't fit any of those three categories, you're not off the hook because you are called to holiness. You are called. That's important. We need to emphasize that call. You are called to holiness, and we're going to see you're called to serve. You are called to be a part of the body of Christ, and we should never undervalue that call. You have been called. So I want you to ask yourself a question. What does it mean that God has called me to holiness? What does it mean? Holiness refers to setting something apart for use by God. What does it mean that God has called you to be set apart for his use? What does that look like? You have been called If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've placed your complete faith in his death on the cross, then you have been called to holiness. One of the first steps in that call to holiness is a step of faith in baptism. To identify yourself with Christ. To say, I am making a public declaration that I've accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, and I want to declare this to the world, that God has called me to holiness. Well, the exciting thing today is we're going to get to witness exactly that part of the call right now. So I'm going to ask Pastor David and Nevea to come up, and as they're coming up, we're going to watch a video that has Nevea's testimony on it. Amen. That is an exciting event, an event we're celebrating. God has called us to holiness. Thank goodness. Thank God that he called and placed that call on my life. I pray that you have responded to that same call that he has placed on your life. We're going to continue in our passage in verses three through six. What I want you to see is that grace is the mark of those called to Christ. Grace is the mark of those called to Christ. In fact, verse 3 tells us that grace and peace are fundamental to the existence of anybody called to Christ. Grace and peace are fundamental. Paul is writing a greeting. This is the introduction to the letter to the church at Corinth. And if you've ever written letters, especially formal letters, there is a particular pattern you follow, right? Dear so-and-so, let me introduce blah, 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 sincerely, and so on, right? There's a pattern that you follow. There was a pattern for how to write letters in Greek. And the traditional Greek pattern was after you introduced yourself and after you've said who you're talking to, so Paul's done both of those, then we get to verse three, and you're supposed to say Karein, which means greetings. And Paul does not. Instead of saying Karein, Paul says. Karis. A little different, right? Just a little different. Huge difference, though, in Greek. Paul says, not greetings, but grace. Grace and peace to you. Grace. You've been saved by grace. You've been marked by grace. By unmerited favor. Grace in salvation. And then Paul's going to expand. Not just the grace that saves you, but a grace that enriches your life. You see, the Christian is saved by grace. And enriched by grace. Life lived well is a life lived out of grace. God provides grace. In fact, in verses 4 through 5, Paul expands on this idea that grace enriches the life of the Christian. He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. What is this enrichment that he's going to talk about? He's going to deal with this several times throughout the book. But here he talks about two spiritual gifts. The Greek word for charis, or sorry, the Greek word for grace is charis. The Greek word for spiritual gift is charisma. He's doing a play on words here. He says, because of his grace given you, and then he goes on at the end there, he says, you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and knowledge. Two spiritual gifts that he will deal with much later in the book. Grace enriches the life of the one called to Christ because grace allows the one called to Christ to utilize spiritual gifts. In fact, I'm going to take this a little bit further and give you just a hint of my view on spiritual gifts. We talk about spiritual gifts as if we own them. We do. People will come up to you and they'll say, what's your spiritual gift? Oh, mine's administration. My gift is teaching. Okay? You don't own it. I'm sorry. Your spiritual gift doesn't make sense. Rather, the gifts are things that God gives to his church through individuals that he's placed in his church. It's a really small distinction. Spiritual gifts are always given to the church in the form of individuals that God has placed in his church with the ability to serve in a capacity given by the Holy Spirit. You might be questioning me on this and saying, how are you going to defend that one? Just wait. We'll get there. Spiritual gifts are given to the church. So, have you ever met somebody that needed taught that they were not God's gift to mankind? (laughs) I don't want to burst your bubble, but I'm going to tell you something. You personally, individually, You are God's gift to this church. You might not be God's gift to mankind, but you are God's gift to this church. Because God gifts the church with individuals. You see, grace is the evidence of those who are called to Christ. The ability to serve the church. So let me give you an action step. Let me ask you, Ask yourself the question. Evaluate yourself and ask. Am I operating from grace? What does that mean to operate from grace? First of all, grace is what gives us salvation. God's unmerited favor. We don't earn it. God looks upon those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior with unmerited favor. But grace also refers to that enriching grace, those spiritual gifts. So we should both operate from the perspective of grace where we operate as somebody who God has blessed with unmerited favor and we operate as somebody that God has blessed the church with. In other words, God has given you to this church to serve. Operating from grace means you're asking the question, how can I serve? God has placed me here to serve this body. How can I do that? We'll keep going, though. Verses 7 through 9 emphasizes to me that the call of Christ always involves a call to serve. The call to Christ always involves a call to serve. Verse 7, let's look at that. It says, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. You do not lack any spiritual gift. Now, here's the challenge of translation. If we all lived in Texas, life would be better. Maybe. If we were to... (laughs) If we were to translate this in the Texas international version, we translate this as, therefore, y'all... And I can't do it as well as others. Therefore, y'all do not lack any spiritual gifts. It's the plural you. It's not individually. You don't, you personally do not have every spiritual gift. As a church, we do. As a church, God has placed within this church individuals to serve the church. And as a church, we are complete when the individuals all come together and serve. We don't lack any spiritual gift. God has provided all of the gifting that we need as a church. Verse 8 tells me that grit is also provided by the one who calls us to serve. I'm using this word grit. This is a word that we developed, well, not developed, we adopted at the University of Nebraska a few years ago. Uh, We... Uh, we're working on what is a big national problem, but was a, a big problem at the University of Nebraska, and that was student retention. And so I was on this team that was analyzing a bunch of data, and at the University of Nebraska, we were concerned with when a student starts in their freshman year, what is the odds or what's the percentage of those students who graduate four years later? Okay, So that was the question that we were really interested in. And what we decided is that we would call students who could graduate in four years. They had a lot of grit, is what we decided was the right word. They could stick to it. They'd made it through. The answer is 37%, Um, which is low. Uh, A place like Duke, which has really, really high graduation rates, is 91%. So it was something we really wanted to work on. And so we started looking at this idea of grit. How can we help students to finish what they started? Grit in the Christian life is provided by the one who called us to serve. It's not something we possess. It's rather Christ. In fact, what I learned in verse 8, as I read verse 8, is that Christ provides all the grit that we will ever need. His graduation rate is 100%. Look at what we have going on here. At the beginning, I argued that you had all individually been called to Christ. Each of you had individually been called to Christ. Then I argued that grace was the mark of those who had been called to Christ. Grace, spiritual gifting, marks those who have been called to Christ. From there, we said, That call to Christ is a call to serve. Does it sometimes exhaust you? Yes. Does it bring you to the end of the rope sometimes? Yes. But what's Christ's graduation rate? 100%. So how does Paul conclude his introduction? By saying that God is faithful. God, the God who called you is faithful. The God who called you into fellowship is faithful. Fellowship describes the unity of all those who are called to serve together. God has called you to serve. And I will challenge you that the way you serve, God has not called you to serve as a seat warmer. We can go buy those at the store if we need them. God has called you to serve. So let me give you an action step. Find a way to serve today. That's your action step. Real simple. Find a way to serve. You have been called. Maybe you've been called as a pastor. Maybe you've been called as a missionary. Maybe you've been called as a deacon. But you all have been called to holiness. You all have been called to serve in God's church. Paul starts 1 Corinthians with an introduction and in his introduction he brings out the big guns right away because the way to solve problems in the church is to buckle down and start serving. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have called each and every one of us, that you've called us to holiness, that you have called us to operate from grace that ultimately you've called us to serve. I pray that you would work within our hearts even now. That you would help us to identify ways that we can serve. Push us. Give us that thrust that we need to step out in faith and to say, here I am, use me. I know that you have called me to serve in this church. I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would serve you, that we would recognize the significance of our calling. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.